Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. We've got another special episode ready for you guys to listen to today. This is one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. We're going to be doing a special episode all about a new book that's come out recently called Escape Origins, which chronicles the recording process behind Michael's songs on the very latest album that's come out under Michael's name called Escape. Now, the author of this book is uh, Damien Shields, Mr. Damien Shields. Uh, he's uh, put out a lot of great work in his time on uh, DamienShields.com, fantastic platform. Uh, and he's here with us today, joining both myself and uh, Q. We'll start with Q. Q, how are you doing? Good morning. Hello, I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? I'm awesome. So thrilled to be doing this. And Damien, how are you, mate? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> Pumped. <laughs> Me too. No, it's been a long time coming for this, and it's glad that we can finally showcase the EXO book. So, and happy we get to talk to you, Damien. And it's awesome that we're all on the show together. It's like three of the uh, three of the NJ brothers all hanging out together. Just another day at the office, really. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, like we've been talking about putting the show together for a few weeks now, and. Uh, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for us to really just dive into your thoughts and, and just your thought process really as an author as well around putting the book together. So where did the idea for Escape Origins come from? Um, well, when the album, the Escape album was released, the original versions of those eight songs were included on a deluxe version of the album. And there was a documentary that accompanied that deluxe album that kind of chronicled the process that the the producers who did the remixed versions went through in order to bring their so-called contemporized versions to completion but what I found was kind of lacking from the project and kind of very important to the project was the origins of those original versions for fans to understand where they come from the process that Michael Jackson himself went through to put them together and actually bring them to the level of completion that they were presented to, to us in uh, on that deluxe version of the album because, you know, first and foremost, we are all Michael Jackson fans and I think it's far more fascinating for a fan, definitely in my personal opinion and for me personally, it's far more fascinating for me to learn about what Michael Jackson was doing and the process that he went through to create what he did in his lifetime as opposed to how, you know, a modern day producer would come in and, you know, change something completely. So I felt that, you know, fans would probably agree. And I kept it on the down though. I kept it really private. I didn't really tell anybody that I was working on it. I just kind of took a leap of faith that other fans would find the information as interesting as I was finding it and uh, set about, yeah, piecing together the stories of each of the eight songs. And along the process I was trying to figure out how am I going to present it to people because obviously I run a blog and I've done a number of articles that detail certain songs histories and you know I was thinking possibly I could do a long-form blog or you know how's the best way to present this information and it all became there was the wealth of information and the the contributors and the people who uh, I interviewed and everyone was so forthcoming with information it was just way too much to put it on a blog so I decided I would put it out as a book. So originally, it wasn't even meant to be a book. You had no idea how it was going to come out. Yeah, I wasn't really sure 
yeah, the way it would be presented wasn't really guaranteed. All I wanted to do was get to the bottom of the origins of the songs and find out if there was a story to tell. If there was an interesting story to tell, I was then going to find the appropriate platform to tell it. And, you know, ultimately it became a book. Um, but it could very well have been, you know, if I didn't if I didn't have much cooperation from producers who worked on those original versions or if there just wasn't really all that much interesting information to, to reveal about the songs, it could have ended up being a blog or some other kind of released on some other kind of platform. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it turned out in the right way. I think it was, uh, the appropriate platform for the information that I ended up with and I hope people are enjoying it. Yeah, totally agree. No, I think it's, um, I think it worked out well as a book. It's not a huge book, but the information in it is uh, like you said, a wealth of information. So we've been plugging it because it's a great book. We've been talking about it on the online and on the show before, but for maybe some new listeners and people that haven't heard about it, can you summarize what the book's about and why people might want to buy it? I think you already touched on it a bit like fans generally like to hear about the creation and stuff. So what can you tell us for, for new people that have just coming across EXO? Uh, well, I think, what the book aims to do is really break down and analyze and articulate the creative process of Michael as a, as the creative genius that he was in the, in the recording studio. So I kind of always give the example of artists like, you know, your Bob Dylan's or the groups like the Beatles or uh, like a Jimi Hendrix or those kind of artists are given a lot of credibility. They've, they've got a lot of credibility and given a lot of credit for their artistic merit of their work. Whereas I think Michael Jackson, um, because he was so famous on such a global platform and because there were so many elements to Michael's fame, obviously it uh, originated in his work with his brothers in the Jackson 5 in the late 60s and early 70s. And it was all about the music then. But as he became bigger and more famous, his fame kind of took a turn uh, in the sensational direction and... Um, it it hasn't diminished his artistic in, uh, integrity didn't diminish his skill and his execution and the, the amount of hours that he put into recording never slowed down if anything it only got more and more as he got older and older but the attention that was paid in that in that area by the public and the media and the people who were writing and publishing about michael was just it was nowhere near it was like almost he, secondary to Michael Jackson's existence was his artistry and he was just like this tabloid celebrity that was interesting and weird and wacky and wonderful to talk about and everyone wants to know what he's doing behind closed doors but no one's interested in his music anymore. So with those artists, like I said, you know, the Dylans and the Beatles and the Hendrix, uh, I, want, I want Michael Jackson ultimately, when people look back on him um, in 50 years' time, I want him to be studied in the same vein. I want him to be given the credit that he deserves for being one of the greatest creative forces in popular music history. And unless there is, you know, published literature available for people to study and learn the true creative genius that this man was, as years go by, people aren't going to be able to learn about that. So, um, creating a book and one book or however many books may come out in the future about Michael's art is very important. Joe Vogel's done a wonderful book about Michael's creative process. It's essential to Michael's legacy as an artist. Chris Cadman has done a number of books um, for the record and the maestro essential to 
people for people to study this guy and what he did through his career. So this is just another kind of extension of that with a, a few new songs that were brought out. I shouldn't say new songs. They're not new at all. They're old songs that Michael recorded in old sessions and he never chose to release. But as the estate are entitled to do, they've chosen to put them out and here they are in the world. And uh, because they are here, I think we need to understand where they came from, put them in context and, and make readers understand the process that Michael went through to, to bring them to completion. So yeah, that's that's kind of the aim of the book. And if people read it and they can understand a little bit better Michael's creative process or, you know, appreciate the level of talent that this guy had, then great. Hopefully that's what it achieves. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it definitely does that. Having read it many times now, I feel like the level of detail you go into uh, around the recording sessions is just phenomenal. That, like, as Q said before, it is it is a fairly short book, but it's so packed with dense information and specific detail and information that you can't help but just finish reading it, just knowing so much more about what happened in these recording sessions. So it's, yeah, I think it definitely accomplishes that for sure. Well, I think it, I think it ventures into areas that people haven't written about before. Uh, especially considering these songs, when I started working on the research, hadn't been, I mean, I started literally researching this project within weeks of the album coming out because there was no information. I was just purely for my own personal selfish reasons was curious. Well, what are the origins of these songs? We haven't, we haven't heard where they've come from. And, you know, people have spoken about the origins of Billie Jean or, you know, Stranger in Moscow or, earth song we know about those things these things were released the people who contributed to them have spoken about that michael spoke about a lot of his art throughout the course of his career but because these things were kind of unknown hidden gems and there was no literature on them at all i think it was easier to write and bring new information to the forefront because there was no information about them available at all so um yeah, it definitely made my job a little bit easier um, because whatever I was going to, to reveal about these songs was going to be new because there was nothing out there. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously when, you, when you're looking at DamienShields.com and the different um, articles you've written, I'd say a vast majority of it really is to do with his music and his artistic contributions, his performances. So I've got to ask, why do you, why do you focus so much on those areas, uh, more specifically his art, and don't speak so much about other particular areas, maybe his humanitarian efforts or relationships and and all of those kind of things. What is it about the art that draws you to that? Well, like I said earlier, Michael's legacy really should be what he put 40 of his 50 years on earth into, and that is his art. So if I can in any, any way contribute to making people understand that area of his legacy better, then, then great. Um, also, the, the people who are the sources of my information because obviously I wasn't there for any of these moments. None of this information is mine. I'm literally, like Michael said, the source, the source through which it comes. I have absolutely nothing to do with any of it. I'm just privileged and lucky to have uh, a lot of really good friends and people who care about Michael's legacy, who worked with Michael, who can help me build these articles and um, help share the information with the public. Um, mm. Without those people, None of it is possible because, like I said, I have absolutely no first-hand knowledge of any of it. I never met Michael at all. I tend to, so I tend to focus on the art for, for the legacy reason and because it, it is the area that I am able to 
kind of talk about with a little bit of authority because I have that information is coming to me directly from the sources who were there in the moment. So I tend not to talk about legal issues because I'm not studied on those issues and I don't have as many sources who are involved with those issues. Um, I definitely don't talk about any of the like the tabloid stuff or Michael's children. I think that's very, very private stuff and I think it's kind of off limits. I don't feel that fans or the public are entitled to know what goes on behind closed doors as far as that stuff, but the music is a different story. So I feel that, yeah, Michael would appreciate, I would hope that Michael would appreciate people talking about his artistry because I think that in his lifetime when he was alive, probably he expressed that it frustrated him that people want to talk the negative stories and they don't want to talk about positive stuff. They only want to talk about the controversial stuff. So if we can change that, if we can flip that balance around in his uh, after his death, then, you know, we're doing a service to him. So, Do you think this has not been discussed before between us, but do you think that if Michael was um, alive and still creating now, that you would be in the position you are? Like, would you be writing books about work of Michael's or would you be doing your blog? Do you think it would have led to similar avenues where you are currently? Um, that's a good question. It's impossible to say for certain I when he was alive I was kind of writing about him from a very distant perspective I didn't know anybody that he personally worked with and I certainly didn't feel the need to study his unreleased music because I mean that was in his control and he would release what he felt the public wanted to to hear and if he wasn't going to release it then there was no need to talk about it because it's you know his prerogative but i I did write some articles for a website, Maximum Jackson, which is now called History Continues. I have a friend who works for Sony Music Australia, so he was very helpful with giving me information about certain projects like the Thriller 25 album and the King of Pop album and After Michael's Death, um, This Is It and the Michael album, Vision and Bad 25 and all the things that have come out since Michael died. So I have, I, ha- I was writing about that stuff when Michael was still with us. But yeah, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I'm not too sure if there would have been a blog dedicated to his artistry or, or not. Um, I don't know. I think, man, like having known you for a decade, I think you would have been putting something out for sure in some way. <laughs> like I, oh, remember, yeah. I, I remember, I remember engaging with your stuff when I was on Maximum Jackson and just like, or even just your forum posts, like all your forum posts about, like, uh, you know, the work that Michael was doing um, leading up to the album that, you know, he was working on that he was going to release around the time of This Is It. Uh, for as long as I've known you, you have been super focused and passionate on his art, you know. Like, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if Michael was still around today if you would have even got the chance to talk to him about his art. I'll, I'll, tell, I think, I'll, I'll tell you I think you would have been like the current Adrian Grant of the new generation. That's how I sort of feel that you would have ended up like. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story that goes back to the Maximum Jackson days when Michael was still alive. Um, In the lead up to Michael announcing the This Is It tour, um, I was in contact with a few of the people who were involved with trying to get the deal done. So I was in contact with Randy Phillips way before we even knew that Michael was definitely doing the tour. And I was in contact with uh, Tomei Tomei as well. And we were keeping an open dialogue about what Michael may be doing. And they were very vague about, you know, 
oh, something's happening, but we can't tell you anything. But when it does happen, you'll know and, and all this kind of stuff. And lo and behold, before the public announcement of this is it, Randy Phillips sends me a random email and says, Michael's getting on a plane on this date and he's going to be flying to London and making a very special announcement. Tell all the fans to get to the O2 on this date. So that happened and that news was big and and the, the, Michael did get on a plane and he did go to London and it all became true and the This Is It tour was announced. And when we found out that he was going to be in London for a very extended period of time, I reached back out to Tomei Tomei, who was managing Michael at the time, and said, look, fans from all around the world are going to London to see Michael. We all want to hear from him. We know the press has fucked him over a million times and we don't blame Michael for probably not wanting to talk to the press, but we still want to hear from him. We have all of these really interesting questions that we want to ask him. And, you know, there are fan magazines in the past that have done phenomenal jobs of having interviews with Michael and, you know, the King, King magazine and, like you said, Adrian Grant and all those different people and all those different publications that somehow got access to Michael, um, the biggest superstar on the planet, but the regular people, the fans, got access to him. So I just thought, mm, I'll throw it out there. I'll ask Tomei Tomei if he's interested in doing, you know, a fan interview. And he told me he would take the idea to Michael. And then he came back to me about a week later and said Michael loved it and he wanted to do it. So what were we going to do is... Um, the team from Maximum Jackson, who were going to be in London, were all going to be invited to Michael's hotel, and we were literally going to sit around and just talk to him. And then after we'd finished there, we were going to publish it, talk about it on the blogs, and share the information that we managed we managed to get out of Michael in that meeting with the fans. It's never been spoken about before because it never happens, so it's really a non-event. But it it was planned to happen and it would have been really cool. And I think fans would have been able to finally learn a few things that we've maybe been wondering about forever and ever. Um, had we had that opportunity to actually meet him and ask him the important questions about his music and his life and his career and his philosophies and what he loves and what's important to him. And, but yeah, but it never happened because obviously Michael passed away and everything, everything that was in, in motion kind of just got frozen. And, uh, now, now all we can do is look back and, and wonder what if and how it would have been and, and everything. But the, the terms and conditions of the interview were that um, it could not be before the opening night. It had to be um, at some stage after the first concert. The people who were looking after Michael, Tomei, Tomei, and the, I say looking after very loosely because I don't want to <laughs> say that they were caring for him. Um, but... At the time, they indicated that they didn't want him to get sick. They didn't want any of the fans to give him a cold. or to, They didn't want anything to stand in the way of that first concert being completely successful. So it was like, let's get the first one out of the way. Then you can do your interview. Um, wow. So, I mean, in hindsight, uh, <laughs> Michael's health wasn't really a concern for them at all, as we can, can see from things that have happened since. But that's the way they positioned it to us. And that was the way that we, we believed it was going to happen. And when we were all in London and we can only, we can only wonder and, and, and imagine if it was really going to transpire the way we had hoped and planned. But that's, that's what was in motion. So, Wow. Thanks for that cool behind the scenes like concept that no one really knew about before. That was really cool. It would have been amazing. Like, I mean, the one thing that frustrates me about Michael's career really is that 
interviewers usually didn't ask him the the questions about his art that I felt he deserved. A lot of the questions that were thrown at him during interviews were about plastic surgery, uh, bogus child molestation uh, allegations. They seemed to focus around those things. But, man, I mean, like you're, you're talking to the king of pop. You're talking to the greatest artist that ever lived. Why are we not discussing the depth of his artistry, the reasons he did what he did artistically and where he was going artistically? I think the person who came closest to asking a remotely interesting question was... Martin Bashir, how do you how do you write a song? I mean, okay, that's a good question. And Michael, being shy, you know, did his best to answer it and gave a little bit of you know the the Billie Jean beatboxing and the story behind the whole thing. But as you look back in his career, like he's being interview, interviewed by by Oprah or by Diane Sawyer, Michael takes it upon himself to do a full beatbox performance or to to in some way in his little way. As, as a showman and as a performer, that he can kind of talk about his art while still remaining humble because by nature he was completely humble and didn't want to take credit for it. But, yeah, I mean, like you say, Jamin, the, the interviewers never no, asked him. We'll be sitting there and be like, okay, like maybe they're going to ask him about um, how he constructed uh, Stranger in Moscow or how did, how did this come to be or, you know, what was the process of recording the vocals for this song? But never, never a question anything remotely like that. It was just all about how many nose jobs oh. or all of these things and completely ridiculous. Can you imagine but, how um, offensive, how, how offend, like, I don't know how Michael felt, but it, it is so, offen- it would, would have felt offensive, I think, to sit there as somebody so accomplished and to hear a question about your appearance rather than your art. I love the way Michael handled it, especially in Martin Bashir, because I think he answered it like he was taking the piss out of Martin Bashir. You know, Martin Bashir was brazen enough to ask him about his cosmetic surgery. So then Michael turned around and said he'd only had two nose jobs, which, I mean, anybody can tell that that's not true. But I don't view that as Michael being a liar. I just view it as Michael going, well, fuck you. You don't deserve to know the true answer to this question. So I'm going to give you whatever answer I feel like feel like giving you right now. And two <laughs> nose jobs. Here, I can count it on two fingers. Two. Two. And that's it. Like... You know, and screw you, I'm not giving you the, the answers to my private business, so don't ask. Anyway, nothing to do with Michael's artistry, but that was a bit of a <laughs> sidetrack. But anyway, <laughs> get back on track. <laughs> All right, cool. I'm getting so, wound up. I'm getting, I'm getting riled up. Let's not uh, uh, We know you're a passionate guy and we like that. That's what we want in the show. So we want fans to see that as well. Um, but the project Escape Origins obviously, which you were heavily invested in and you got so much information from it was a big project, but you weren't alone on this, were you? You had Absolutely not. You had James working with you. How did James, James Yeah, how did James come to be involved in the project? Well, he didn't come to be involved in the project. He was involved from the very day that the idea even kind of manifested. As I write in the book, I was having a conversation with James on the phone and it was, and it was purely frustration like why aren't why isn't there more attention being focused on these original versions i want to learn about them where's the information and it was sparked from there like let's go and find it and that was it and james has been there for every step of the way james works on all of my research projects with me he's my my number one collaborator my sounding board he's my confidant he's my best friend and we're just two passionate michael jackson fans i mean how fun is it to be able to research a guy that you admire and love from a distance but have access to all of these people who knew him personally and can kind of 
you know, give you insights. Uh, and then when you get those insights, you can find ways to present them to the public so that all of the fans can be enlightened to the, to the wonders of Michael. So James and I basically, like I explained earlier, we went about researching, weren't sure how it was going to be presented. And when it was decided that it was going to be a book, James was, James was crucial in the back end, the technical side of stuff, actually formatting this thing so it could be presented as a book because, you know, writing a book isn't about just sitting at your computer in a Word document typing something up. Yeah. And you don't actually realize when you're writing, like when you say, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book. And yeah, there is a, a moment where it's just a Word document and you and typing. But then you get to a certain point where it's like it needs to go to the next level and you start facing all of these hurdles that you didn't know existed and you had you had never imagined that you would need to go through this and that and this step and, and this cost and this legal ob- obstacle and all of these things that come along with writing a book that nobody really doesn't cross anyone's mind because as a consumer, when you buy the book, all you do is you pay your $15 and you receive your book, you open it, read it, and that's done. You don't have to worry about anything. You just literally get it, absorb the information. Exactly. Um, So like Michael says, and like I write in the preface of the Escape Origins book, people aren't used to seeing the work that goes into it. They're only used to seeing the outcome. So much work goes into something for someone to actually receive the final product. So, yeah, there's a lot of work, a lot of stuff that goes into it. And James was, James Olay was so pivotal in making those obstacles, um, overcoming those obstacles and making the things that we needed to, to create and build and design and, and the relationships we needed to have with printers and, you know, footing bills and distribution and manufacturing and down to the, the details of the postage envelopes and testing several different kinds of postage envelopes to ensure that when we sent something out in the mail to a fan, it would arrive in perfect condition. Um, you know, it, testing different inserts that we can put in the envelope with the book so that the book wouldn't bend. Testing different postal services so we can make sure the fans would get the book as quickly as possible when they ordered it and as for a lower cost as possible when they ordered it. That's all James. Like, that's absolutely nothing to do with me and I can't take any credit uh, for any of that stuff. So, to yeah, in a nutshell, James was completely important and involved from the very first day. So, you guys obviously work so good as a team because from our consumer end and, and even from your mate seeing this uh, product coming out, it seemed to go quite smoothly. So, I guess... Uh, you working together so well is because you're like best mates. Yeah, yeah. I think we're on the same wavelength. We don't agree on everything. We definitely have, as as MJ called it, or Kenny Ortega says that MJ called it, creative jousting. But it's never an argument. It's always just a you know a creative brainstorming session where we don't agree and we put our cases forward. And I feel that almost practically 100% of the time we come to the right conclusions. One of us will give up. And we'll give up because we know the other person's right. Um, and I've given up so many times on things that I've felt passionately about that I just had to admit that James knew more about. James was right about. Um, and it's for the betterment of the product because I sometimes pick up the book and flick through and go, oh, imagine if I had got my way on this thing. Like, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have looked anywhere near as good as it does now. Or, you know, imagine I had have um, excluded this quote that I was 
you know, not so certain about including. Or imagine if I had, a, you know, not rewritten the chapter this way, the way I was asked to rewrite it, or, you know, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as it is. So definitely a major team effort, 50-50 right down the middle. I've got to ask, Damien, obviously the book's full of amazing information, but what was uh, the most, the chapter that was most interesting for you to research and why? Most interesting? Good question. I would have to say, and it's not even so much to do with the song itself, Escape, the song Escape, because researching that song opened up a kind of a window into the entire Invincible era. Escape was a song that was written by Fred Jerkins, LaShawn Daniels, and produced by Rodney Jerkins. And that was like smack bang in the middle of the Invincible recording sessions. And that song kind of went on a, on a, on a journey through from the early days all the way through to the end of the Invincible sessions and even a little bit beyond the release of the Invincible album. And as a consequence of that, my research kind of allowed me to present that escape chapter as an insight to the Invincible sessions a little bit. I mean, it could have been elaborated on uh, and expanded far deeper and maybe I will one day, who knows, but um, yeah, escape the escape song. Just, it was so fascinating to just to learn about that era. I had a lot of really wonderful, interesting sources. I spoke with um, Michael Prince and I spoke with Rodney Jerkins and Fred Jerkins I spoke with Corey Rooney in great detail about that whole era. Corey Rooney was the, is the guy who wrote uh, She Was Loving Me, or the song that Sony and the estate called Chicago. And he was also the, um, he was the president of A&R and the vice president of Sony Music Entertainment through that whole period of the Invincible album. So he had a really good level of insight into the, the behind the scenes, the, the inner workings of Sony Music and what was going on with that album from their perspective and what was going on with the album from an artistic perspective. And also because he was friends with Michael, what was going on with the album from Michael's perspective. So it was, yeah, that was really fascinating. And I think it was a really interesting way to end the book. And it was probably the chapter that I was most intimidated about writing because before I had started, like some of the songs I had a bit of a working knowledge on going into this thing. I'd already done an article on the song She Was Loving Me which I expanded further for the book. And I'd already done an article about A Place With No Name. So I had a pretty good understanding of those songs, but Escape was one that I just, I really didn't have a single piece of correspondence or information about going into it. And it just, yeah, it was fascinating. That chapter was my favorite to read from the book. And I, Me too. I actually would say that that is my most listened to Michael Jackson song since I've become a fan because it was the first song, uh, I think it was, I might be wrong, but I think it was the first song to ever come out since I became a fan in 2001 because it leaked. And I think it was the first new Michael Jackson song I, I engaged with after the Invincible product. So, I mean, I've al always had a fascination with the history of the song and then also the era because having become a fan like yourself during that, that time period, 2001, we, we became fans right in the middle of the meltdown <laughs> of the Invincible promotional campaign so there's a lot of mystery surrounding that time period and there's also a lot of mystery around why some of these really really strong cuts 
didn't come out on the Invincible album, such as We've Had Enough and Escape. So I found it incredible. It was, it was more, it's more, to anybody that hasn't read the book yet, when you're reading the Escape chapter, it's more than a discussion around the song Escape. It's like Damien said, it's a window into the era. You're learning all about the behind the scenes stuff as well. It's absolutely fascinating. And what I wrote in the beginning of that chapter is, I kind of prefaced the, the chapter with that, like in order to understand the origins and the history of the song Escape, you first have to understand the the era in which it came to be and the relationship that Michael had with the people who wrote and produced Escape. So that is why I needed to talk about the Invincible era because it was if if I didn't talk about the era and what was going on in that time, it would be hard to really talk about the song because it's, it's an era that really doesn't have much literature published on it to begin with. So it's, you know, you could have, I could have been very vague with my descriptions of the song had I not described the entire era and how it came to be. Cause that song, the song escape and the entire Rodney Jerkins collaboration with Michael almost didn't come to be Rodney Jerkins kind of failed at the first meeting. Michael wasn't impressed. And as I write in the book, it, it almost didn't happen. He got a second chance and he worked his ass off and he did everything in his power to kind of get Michael on board with what he was doing. And you, as you, as you read in, in the chapter, um, you know, they kind of struck gold with rock my world, which was the first song that they got Michael to record. And from then it opened up further songs were proposed. Michael loved them, recorded them and it went on and on and on for years. So, yeah. I think fans, I think that's going to really resonate with fans that chapter because I think for the Invincible era, we as fans are so hungry for information and detail from then um, that you have started to provide. Like I'm sure there's still a lot more that we all want to know from that time and what was being worked on and, and the stories from people at that time. So hopefully in the future we'll get even more information from that era. Yeah. The, the, the chapter that I wrote is really just the tip of the iceberg. I've, you know, you could go very deep on the invincible era. It is a very, very fascinating, um, different era than Michael had ever had before. Like it was, you know, Brian Vivitz is another guy I interviewed for that chapter. He uh, worked on some of the early engineering uh, and production of the song escape with Rodney Jerkins. And he said, and Brian Vivitz also worked in the history sessions, and he said it was, the Invincible sessions were nothing like the history sessions. It was a whole different ball game. Um, and, yeah, it's, it, would just, it would be interesting to, to document that, that whole part of Michael's life. There was so much more than music going on in the Invincible era, which it's almost shocking that Michael managed to think, record and, and release an album in that, part of his life it was a it was a very very turbulent part of his of his existence so i've got a question that we've had a another author um still mortilla on the show talking about his incredible book the first book of michael and i think we posed this question to him as well because as fans in the community we see uh some people in the community trying to suggest that you're just profiting off Michael's name. And I think we had Sill's answer on this. So I'd be interested to know from your side, what do you say to people that suggest that you're profiting off Michael's name alone? 
Uh, That's an interesting and funny question. First thing I would do is ask that person to look up the dictionary definition of profit. Profit is something that is basically you're putting a product out and profit is the money that you make once you have paid off all the overheads and the costs that are involved with actually bringing that project or product to fruition. Uh, That will never happen, let me assure you. It will never happen with Escape Origins. That project cost far more to produce than it will ever generate in revenue from sales. That's just not me going, oh, I'm not making any money. That's just a cold hard fact. I had to fly around the world to interview people, you know, visiting people in their studios. I had to pay for, for rights and licensing and legal fees and all kinds of stuff that people who pick up the final product and read the words printed on the paper will never possibly imagine you had to go through to get there. As far as people saying that I'm profiting, there, you know, there's no such profit to talk about, which kind of voids the question a little bit. But let me just say this. Being a, a writer is, for some people, a career. And a career just in the same way as being a teacher or a mechanic or a physiotherapist or an architect or any other career. Now, you tell me if you, Q, who... I don't know if this is too personal to reveal about yourself. Or a flight attendant? Yes, Brian. I'm a flight attendant. And you, Jamin, are a history teacher? Correct. High school history teacher? Would either of you two spend, for example, the Escape Origins book? I worked on approximately nine, for nine months, and I was working between 12 and 18 hours a day on it. Now, would you, you tell me if you would work as a flight attendant or a history teacher for nine months straight, for 12 to 18 hours a day, and not only not make a single cent, but make a loss to do it. And I think that kind of puts it in perspective um, how people can expect for someone to go about their career going into the project knowing that they're not actually even going to make a cent, but they're also going to have to... I'm essentially paying for people to have the information. Mm -hmm. But that's not a problem. I'm not complaining about that, and I do it again in a heartbeat because I feel Michael's legacy and the information that we're able to bring to the people is so important that I really don't care if it's going to cost me an arm and a leg and I'm never going to see a cent from it because Michael deserves his truth to be out there and Michael deserves his legacy to be solidified. He was a creative genius and so many people are refusing to acknowledge that. The people in positions of power to publicize that information are refusing to acknowledge it. So you know, if it takes me to write a book and spend a whole bunch of money and never see anything, any of it back, then fine, I'll do it. Because I absolutely love the process and I absolutely freaking love Michael Jackson. So it's important and that's just the way it is. So that's my answer to your question, Q. That's a good answer. It just perplexes me that mm. people out there try to bring it down. Same with Seal Mortilla's work. And I don't, I don't think Escape Origins is suffered the same kind of negative attention from certain groups in the fan community uh, to that scale. But there's still people out there that say that kind of thing. And I just, I don't understand it, especially as a historian myself. I love learning about history, any kind of history. I think it's so important that the truth to do with any topic is documented uh, properly and available for people to consume. But the only way that that uh, documentation can happen, that research process, that information being published, the only way for that to happen is for somebody to put their time and effort into doing it. And they deserve 
a profit anyway. So I don't, I just don't get it. I don't get it how people think that's a bad thing. But yeah, it's bullshit. You don't go to your job and work for free because you have to. You you know you go and do the job because it needs to be done, and you get remunerated accordingly. But yeah, writing a book isn't cheap. And if you were charging, if you got your total bills at the end between you and James and what it cost to put this together and then calculated, okay, if we're going to sell the book this many copies, you know, it'll be like $500 a book or whatever to pay it all off and then add a bit extra. That would be, you know, trying to make a profit. You're not even trying to make a profit. So anyone that is out there saying this shit, is I'm just going to say straight out, back off and fuck off because you're just full of bullshit and that is not what is happening here at all. This is getting it out there. Q has guys. gone rogue. This is getting it out there for you to enjoy. So just shut up. I love it. I love it. The only Thanks, other time Q. I've heard him go rogue on the show is um, not having the MJ1 soundtrack available uh, in Las Vegas to buy. <laughs> annoyed by that that's the second time i've heard him going rogue about that issue because he went rogue about that issue and it's in a chat (laughs) with me well Um, you know i like to earn our explicit tag so there you go uh wonderful thanks you it means a lot thanks that's cool so over to you now jamin well i've got a question about um like when you're actually talking damien to um michael jackson's collaborators because i mean i've only had the chance to talk to a couple of people so far that have um, known Michael, uh, so Tommy Organ and Kerry Anderson, we've done a couple of specials on those guys at the MJ cast, but you've obviously had the chance to talk to a lot of people that knew Michael um, artistically in the studio. And I want to know about like when you interview those people, what kind of emotions and feelings are going through you when you're talking to them? You know, like what's it like? Sometimes, it, sometimes they're talking and, I'm kind of just like escaping into their little world of like trying to like imagine I was there or whatever and they'll stop talking and I'll have to realize, hang on, this isn't a dream or this is, hang on, I have to actually respond. <laughs> I have to say something back to them because <laughs> sometimes people, like for example, um, one of the, the most exciting interviews that I ever did was, was with CJ Villa and his passion. CJ Villa was an engineer that worked at um, the record plant in – Los Angeles in 1998 and 1999 when Michael was doing Blue Gangster and A Place With No Name and he was also working on songs like uh, Break of Dawn and Cry and different songs that came early in the uh, in the in the Invincible sessions and it, when he talks about working with Michael and he talks about Michael in general his passion levels are just on a whole another level and I might, I might even be able to dig up some audio that we can play. So let me let me see what I can find from an interview that I did with him. Yeah, that totally sounds like a great idea. How about how about we hit play on that audio right now? The pyrotechnics that came out of this man was ridiculous. Nobody realizes it, but it comes out like that all the fucking time, dude. Uh, it's it's powerful. It's magic. And sometimes he would, I mean, uh, he he would almost channel when he would be singing. You know, I mean, he would be scary sometimes. He would actually grab the mic with his hand and and just get into it, you know. And then and then the part would be over. He'd let go of the mic and he'd sit there and just simmer. And I would wait sometimes 20, 30 seconds before he got his composure back. He'd be waiting, going, ooh, you know. Wow. And then we'd drop in again, you know. So he was, 
let's say, gathering up energy, widening up his body, and then, bam, letting it loose, and then relaxing, composing himself, a slight little five-second meditation, and we do another drop-in. So he was really focused on every part, every swing at the ball. There was a lot of force behind every take. It was, he, he thrilled me in the studio. Wow, that was really amazing, Damien. Thank you for uh, being able to share that with, uh, with the MJ cast and all of our listeners as well. My absolute pleasure. So to continue on with, uh, with Q's question, uh, was it your question, Jamin? about what it's like to Jamin's question. Yeah, that was right. mine. Yeah. I'm losing my mind. Um, about what it's like to deal with these people. Yeah, some of these people it, it just it's just you can be sitting across the table from them and just looking at them and be like, "Wow, you were in this person's presence for 20, 25 years." Like some of some sometimes it's just astonishing to just like just shake yourself and and just understand how privileged these people were. And one thing I just want to say about the people who worked with Michael that I was privileged enough to interview for the project um, is, man, they are some of the nicest people on the planet. One common denominator with people that Michael worked in the studio with on his art is that they are just so, so nice. And I've, even beyond people I've interviewed for Escape Origins, I mean, I've interviewed... Um, like Kenny Ortega and Lavelle Smith and um, Brian, uh, sorry Barry Lather and uh, you know, Jeff Margolis and these people are just absolutely wonderful. They're so so nice and kind and just I don't know them from a bar of soap, but even I feel safe just talking to them. Um, and some people in the world, you know, can be really difficult to feel. Like you can you can really let your inhibitions and your guard down and have an honest, open conversation with. But these guys, the first time you speak to them, they're just so open. And um, I think that is really one of the main reasons that Michael Jackson was able to kind of produce such incredible creativity uh, because he knew he was in a safe space with these people. He knew he was in an environment where he could literally bring any idea to the table, there'd be no judgment, there would only be facilitation to make that art come to life or improve or be better than it was when he brought it to the table or, you know, if Michael has an idea that he's not able to articulate precisely, there are people who would spend hours and hours and hours and hours and not be frustrated with the fact that it didn't happen quickly but they were, they were just there because they just wanted the best for Michael and they wanted to see his vision through and they wanted to make sure that he knew that they didn't want anything else from him other than wonderful art. And they were a team. Um, and it's, you know, it's very rare. I don't, I don't often come across artists in the modern era where you can like truly understand and feel that this project came together from a team atmosphere. Because, you know, a singer will be a singer and then a producer will be a producer and the producer's running all over the country working with all of the hot artists and they just want to get their name on certain tracks and they just want to make a big amount of money because they want to have number one hits with this singer and that that singer and this group and that group. But with Michael, it was like Matt Forger, Michael Prince, Brad Buxer, John Barnes. These people were his core team of 
the creative force that when they came together and they worked on music and they worked on demos, magic was going to happen and they were all in it together and they all saw the whole process through together and it was just it, it was just magic and the results are magic. Michael's music was magic and not just the music on the Escape project that I've talked about in the Escape Origins book, but the music we all, we've all had for decades. Those people were there. From the beginning, from the beginning when Michael had the idea to the final moment where he let it go and it was out there, publicized on a CD for the entire world to experience. That Michael's creative team is responsible, each in their own little way, with Michael Jackson as the captain of that ship. And it's just, it's just astonishing to think about this little core group of people to make so much magic for so long. I think Michael was really, really smart with who he worked with. I think he he didn't need to have hotshot producers, although he did give a lot of people an opportunity. But if the opportunity didn't work out uh, and Michael didn't feel comfortable with it, it wouldn't progress. But yeah, like, I mean, he worked with he worked with people like Will I Am, fleetingly. He worked with people like Akon, fleetingly. Um, not a lot of material actually completed with these people. But throughout that whole process, even those final years where he was giving people the opportunity to write for him, Neo was writing for him, but Michael never recorded any of it. You know, people were submitting songs. He was giving the opportunities, but the relationships never went to that level where he would get in the studio and do an album with them. And even in those moments, before and after working with people like Will I Am, Akon, and Neo in those final years of his life, who was still around actually recording the demos in the studio with Michael. Michael Prince, Brad Buxer, the core people who he trusted. And John Barnes over in Bahrain worked heavily with Michael. And Bill Bottrell also went over to Bahrain and worked a little bit with Michael in the final years too. Those people, they were still around because Michael knew where his magic was happening. And, uh, and he trusted his instincts and he trusted... He trusted trust. Those people were trustworthy and it, it just all came together beautifully. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah, we got some amazing stuff and I'm sure that if stuff had been different, we would have been getting some incredible stuff yet to come as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you mentioned before like how, how long you'd worked on the book and sort of the hours that you were putting into it and a uh, shout out to your beautiful mum, to Wilson, who fed me so well when I visited you guys recently over in Queensland. <laughs> Love um, Wilson. So, yeah, thanks, Wilson, for looking after Damien because you were working so hard and we were, like, sort of worried, like, how are you sleeping and how are you eating and looking after yourself, working sleeping. hard on it. What I wasn't sleep? sleeping at all. <laughs> so, like, what was your writing process? Well, in the acknowledgement section of the book, I give, I give my mum a... A, a pretty big acknowledgement because she really did. She, if I was the vehicle that was going to make this project happen, then she was the mechanic that serviced me because, <laughs> you know, I, I really wasn't thinking or concentrating on anything other than getting the job done so the fans could have the information because, you know, it got to a certain point where I concluded my research, but the book still wasn't written. And I'm sitting on all of this wonderful information and I'm not able to actually present it to fans yet. And it became, you know, I was getting really anxious. I wanted the fans to have the information because it was, you know, so enjoyable. Uh, you guys, personally, being my friends, were lucky enough to have had drafts in advance. And so you'd been sitting on that info for just as long as I had. 
um, but the whole world hadn't been. And the process of getting there to getting that job done was, you know, I was in an extremely disheveled state. You know, I was going days without showering. I was going, I was going days without sleep. I wasn't thinking about food. All of a sudden, I'd, I'd been working for 12 hours straight, and all of a sudden, there'd be a plate put on the table in front of me. A meal had been cooked for me. Thanks, mum. Like, amazing. <laughs> didn't have to, I, didn't, I was so lucky that I didn't have to think about those things. A lot of people contributed in certain ways to the project that really aren't probably given enough credit. And they're in the acknowledgments of the book. But, you know, there's my mum with taking care of me. And there were my friends from keeping, keeping me sane and being my sounding board. And, you know, when I'm frustrated or, you know, sleep deprived or, you know, not in a really good place, um, to people to, you know, tell you everything's going to be okay, lift your spirits and get you back on track and, yeah, so I'm very privileged to have some very beautiful, wonderful people in my life that have uh, that have helped me get to the get to the finish line with this project. If anyone's interested to know who they are, they're all in the acknowledgments of the book. So, so what about the process though behind your writing? Like, what what do, what do you do? Like, when you get an idea for a project, what what do you actually then do to make it a reality? What process do you go through? Okay, well, the most important thing for me is the Michael Jackson fan community. They're the people who are, they set such a high standard for what's expected of literature on Michael. Uh, They know just about everything that there is to know about Michael. These fans spend, you know, just like me, I'm one of them. I'm, you know, on the forums, on the Facebook groups, just talking and like speculating and, you know, dreaming and fantasizing about Michael and not in a dodgy way. Um, (laughs) just about, you know, how things could have been if, you know, if he was still with us or, you know, so, and, and like reading every interview that people's talking about their work with Michael. And so it's really hard to, to provide them, the core audience, the people who are really going to appreciate this stuff with something they haven't heard before. So my process is always to, I'll give you the exact example of how I went about the escape origins project which is also the exact same way i went about uh, i published a an extensive long-form article about the michael jackson one night only uh concert that michael was supposed to do with hbo in 1995 Mm, great article but never did so the process for that article and for the escape origins book is exactly the same now what i do is i um first identify all the information about the subject that i'm researching that already exists so what I'll do is I'll obviously look through my own archives of quotes and interviews that have previously been published and see what I've got on that matter. And then I'll go through all of the fan sites and I'll actually spend a few days reading every single post, every single kind of question that a fan might pose or kind of something that fans might dream and wonder about. You know, I wonder what was going on here or I wonder how this would have looked. And Michael's fans allow me to guide my line of questioning when I'm interviewing the people who worked on these things to get everything that they want down on paper because, um, you know, I know what I'm interested in personally, me as an individual, um, but so many different people have so many different tastes and interests that it's so important to study the fan community and study what them as a whole want to know about certain things 
And then when I take those questions to the collaborators who worked on the projects and I pose them to them, it's, it allows me to you know, open up a much wider scope of detail. So that's my process. I, I find all the information that's out there. Then I find out what the fans want to want to know. And then I go about filling the gaps. And then I obviously have to build a narrative in order to make it sound interesting when someone's reading it. And, you know, weave little anecdotes and little dives back into history to make things, to make people understand why something might be relevant, give a bit of context here and a little fun fact here and tie the whole thing together into a product that's, you know, sending someone on a little mini adventure. I remember reading some of your earlier um, versions of some of the chapters that you put out, and I felt that that was something that was not there for some of them, was that narrative uh, thread through a lot of them. And I, I think some articles you put out have always had that, like um, She Was Loving Me, your, the article you put out on your website always had that, especially when you were talking about you know, um, you know, what was going on at the time with the magician. Who was it? There was a magician that was doing something. David Blaine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that 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 whole thing when you were talking about David Blaine and that that really really allowed me to put myself in the in the context of what you were talking about. So was there kind of like a defining moment in the project where you thought, well, I want to go back and kind of make the the escape origin stories to be similar to that as well? Or there definitely was. I sent the, the copy of a copy of the draft to a dear friend of mine, Roshni, and she read it, and she's one of my closest friends in the world, and she's very honest with me. She said, you know. There are a couple of chapters in this book that are just absolutely incredible. I love the She Was Loving Me chapter and I love this other chapter and whatever it was. I think it was the escape chapter. She said, but, you know, you really have to revisit this chapter and this chapter because they are nowhere near as interesting. There is, it's, I think it was explained to me that they kind of read like um, encyclopedia articles or Wikipedia articles. Um, very just formal fact-driven this happened on this date and then this person did this and that. And there was no actual, you didn't feel like you were there in that moment. Whereas some of the other ones, because it had such deep access to the people who were there in the moments, like she was loving me, Corey Rooney. I have interviewed him for a total of about five or six hours, just about that one song. Yeah. Um, and I actually wrote that article that I published about the song and then read the article back and then under, and realized that there was so much that was lacking from it. And I had to go back and interview him again in order to fill the gaps. So it was I was very, very lucky to have some very kind of harsh critics behind the scenes who knew me personally and were able to kind of just say, look, you know, it's good, but it's it could be so much better. And you really need to hold yourself to that level of quality and that level of narrative that some chapters have and you need to weave it through the whole thing because it's feeling good in moments and feeling weak in moments and it, the whole thing needs to feel strong. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you know, the, the whole saying of, you know, if something positive happens, you'll go until one person, but something negative happens, you'll go until five. That feeling of like, well, you know, that was a great chapter, but there were so many downers. Like I didn't want that feeling to be magnified and multiplied with readers. So I wanted every single word and every single part of it to be as compelling as the other. Uh, and I think finally it took a lot of rewriting, but finally I think we got to a, to a level where the whole thing is fairly interesting, especially, yeah. especially if you aren't familiar with any of the background info on any of the songs, Definitely. you'll really, you'll really find, you know, a little adventure for every song. And then 
I've tried to make one overall adventure for the whole book. I tie things around from the first chapter to the last, yeah. try and make everything come full circle, which was really helpful that Love Never Felt So Good was the first song, which was my first chapter, and Escape was the last song on the album and therefore my last chapter, and Escape was the first uh, sorry, Love Never Felt So Good was the first song, the earliest song, 1980 was that was where that song originates from. And then Escape was the last song. It was 1999. So it was literally beginning to end from that first chapter to that last chapter and everything in between. Yeah, I definitely feel that there's a, a great amount of um, consistency and cohesion to the to the book as a whole. Did you experience any significant challenges with the project? So, for example, did you have writer's block at any point during the process? The most frustrating thing in the world for a writer. I had so much writer's block. And people might kind of go, well, it's not creative writing. It's not, you know, you don't have to imagine something. You don't have to create a story. You've just got to, you know, articulate the facts. But I don't know. I have this inability. When I've got writer's block, I have this inability to do anything. I'm like frozen. Let it go. Let it go. And some of those days where I'm t- when I'm talking about like, you know, 48 hours straight working. And this might sound stupid and people might go, oh, well, why are you complaining that you worked so hard? Because you were doing nothing for all of this time. But I could literally have, I could literally have sat at my computer and for 12 hours just looking at the screen and nothing's coming. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, I, it's, I can't explain it. I can't explain why it happens. But you have to, you have to sit there and get through those periods of writer's block because as soon as the channel's open and the work starts flowing again, you have to be available for it. Um, and if you're not available for it in the moment where it's decided, okay, now's a good time for you to write and it's just going to come out of you, then you're going to miss that opportunity. So that was one of the reasons as a writer uh, of this nature, you, I had to you know, leave my job because if I was finding it frustrating in the past to work on projects and then be frustrated at home and have writer's block and be, you know, stuck in front of my computer screen for four hours where I thought, you know, I'm going to dedicate this four hours to working on this. <laughs> and then I sit there for four hours and after four hours, I've got absolutely fucking nothing. How frustrating is that? So, yeah, I took the, the, the big leap to, you know, leave my job. And I actually left my job at the end of 2013 um, with the intention of working on the A Truth Untold project. Obviously, that didn't quite pan out how I had hoped, but it allowed me to really nourish and give all the attention that was needed to um, my website. And of course, the Escape album was coming out not long after that, and I obviously documented the whole process of the album and the, you know, the singles and the videos and the sales and kept fans up to date, and it was a huge, bustling period of time for my website, and I was literally a full-time thing just to keep that updated. And then, of course, I... Um, started working on this project and because I already wasn't working, it's like, well, now I have to definitely allow my channels to be open for this project. And then, yeah, you have those problems with the writer's block. But And the, the same thing happens with articles as well. Like, I, It might sound really silly. This is going to sound totally silly to someone who's not a writer. But even writing an article about the sales of an album, it, you can have writer's block for something like that. And it's or, or you could have a conversation on the phone like this and I could tell you what the sales were and I could tell you what it means in the scheme of things and how those sales compare to previous projects and whatever. 
but there's just some weird like disconnect between your brain and your fingers that don't allow you to type it, and I can't explain it. It's just bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, like I've like I've said, and I've probably gone on and on about it a little bit, but it's so frustrating. But it happens, and I think well, I think just about every writer experiences it. Speaking of significant challenges, before we move on, I've got a question that I'm going to just throw out there, and you might not even want to answer it. But did you have any people that you uh, tried working with, and it was just a brick wall? Was was there any people like that that just would not cooperate, and that sort of threw a spanner in the works? As far as people I interviewed for to get like the the information that I wanted to share in the book, yeah. No, um, every single person who I was able to find contact information for um, to reach out to to interview was 100% forthcoming. And that's a really, really beneficial thing that I've found um, as far as dealing with people that Michael worked with is they just love talking about their work with Michael. Nobody didn't want to talk about their work with Michael. So it was like... I can hear you laughing, and I know yeah, why you're laughing. I'm just thinking, like, there's some people, there's some people out there that don't like talking about their work with Michael. Everyone who actually worked with Michael is more than happy to talk about it, and <laughs> it it has been. It's no, it's honestly a wonderful gift because the stories that they have, uh, if they don't articulate those stories to someone like myself who's willing to go the whole nine yards and spend that nine months in putting together a product that allows fans to visit that information in context and understand it in a, in a, in a really like professionally published piece of literature, then those stories will die with the people who have them. And that's the, that's like my worst nightmare for Michael's legacy is that people who have these stories aren't going to get, be presented with the opportunity or the proper platform to share them. And that's why I love the MJ cast because wonderful. Look, you've got a platform here. You're doing a podcast you're inviting people who worked with Michael, who knew him personally, to come on and share wonderful stories about him that will be uploaded to the internet and then, you know, immortalized forever. People will have access to these podcasts forever. You know, once it's on the internet, it's never coming off the internet. It's out there. Great um, way to give me stage fright, Damien. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's just a fantastic platform. And I just think that the people that I approach and the way I approach them, and it wasn't in a pretentious you know, writing this big, wonderful book way. It's just like, hey, I'm just a dude from Australia. I've got some questions and I'm hoping to be able to get to the point where I've got enough info that this thing can be shared with the public. Do you want to talk about it? Everyone said yes. And I've developed some absolutely wonderful, dear friendships from these, um, from just, just from a basic interview. Interview someone for a couple of hours on Skype or whatever and then, you know, years later, you're still talking to them and you're texting them about sport and what you had for dinner. And, you know, you just have to treat them like real people because at the end of the day, that's all they are. That's all any of us are. We're all equal. We're all human beings. Some people work with Michael Jackson and some people sit at their kitchen table writing a book. And we're all different. We all bring diff different things to the table, but we're all human. So <laughs> everyone, if you approach them in the right way and treat them with the right amount of respect, will be open to it and yeah these people that, that, that I spoke with were just wonderful absolutely no. wonderful I haven't had a brick wall on this project at all on other certainly, projects not so much <laughs> it certainly paid off like it does seem like you so open and 
the honesty from people that uh, resulted in the book. With the book in mind, what was important for you and James in terms of positioning and promoting the book once it was a finished product? Well, it was very important for us to to make sure that the book wasn't biased in any way. And the the way I decided to write it, which is now the way we're able to position it and market it, is that these are the stories in the words of the people who were there for it. This isn't Damien Shields retelling stories. This is literally the amount of quotes in this book. Like I would say I haven't I haven't like calculated or like added it up, but I reckon seventy five percent of the actual words in the book are quotes. Uh, that was really important to me because I didn't feel that I was worthy of retelling the stories. I wasn't there for any of these moments. They're not my stories to tell. I have no business in telling them. But with the collaborators consenting to sharing those stories with me based on the premise that they will be going to the public, I felt a lot more comfortable with doing the project and then being able to market it to the to the fans as the stories of Michael Jackson, the creative genius, in the words of the people who were there in the moment that these magical, magical things happened. These songs came to fruition. They were there from woe to go. Go to woe. Backwards to forwards, whatever. I'm losing my mind again. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's that was really important. Was it was for me to because I feel really embarrassed even. I even felt like, say for example, here's a little story, doing the, the book cover design. And we had a talented artist uh, named Stephen Ward who created the base image. And then James uh, took that image and applied some effects to it that align with the philosophies of the whole book, which is, you know, Escape Origins is, you know, based around the songs that Michael worked on. And Michael says his songs were created in space. So we applied a cosmic theme. But the title of the book, Escape Origins, the songs and stories Michael Jackson left behind, and then by Damien Shields, like, I was so embarrassed to even put by Damien Shields on there, because I didn't feel like I'd done anything, really, like, obviously, I'd sat there in front of the computer for all those hours, and, like, typed on my keyboard, and the whole thing came together, but without the collaborators, it wouldn't have happened, so I felt, like, kind of ashamed or shy or embarrassed to put my name on it, but, yeah, I think I've just gone way off track with your question, um, question was about the marketing no it all ties in together really because i mean you know you, you were talking about make preferencing the words of the people who worked with michael jackson as a, a big uh, draw card for people wanting to learn about michael as well it's not necessarily that it's a draw card i mean it's the true description of what the, the product is the product was designed to be that way because i'm not i don't feel entitled to tell the stories so it's just yeah. telling it's just being very frank and honest with the audience and saying you know, this is what this is. This is the songs and the stories that Michael left behind in the words of the people who were there. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all that the book claims to be. It doesn't claim to be anything else. It doesn't claim to be any kind of wonderful journalistic feat by Damien Shields. Not at all. It's just completely credited to the people who told the stories. And that's it. I just typed it up. So let's get into a bit of detail around the publishing of the book um, and how that whole process came about. I want to learn about, like, you know, what publisher did you end up going with and why did you make that decision and how did the publishing all happen? As far as publishing goes, we published it ourselves. We footed the bill. We can't, well, basically from, from beginning to end, and this is probably a better question for James to answer, although he's not here to answer it. I'll try my best. Once we have a manuscript, which is my contribution, writing the whole freaking thing, you got to find a way to bring it to 
like a physical form. And there are a few options. We could have done like a print on demand thing, which is, you know, find a service that will print a book every time someone orders one and then send it out. Or we could have done the route of trying to sell it to a publishing house who would have perhaps given us a cash advance or whatever. I don't know, however that works to give the hand over the book to them and then have them publish it. That would have meant that we would have been at the mercy of edits and changing things and positioning things and sensationalizing things possibly to how the publisher wanted the book to be so they could sell it how they wanted to sell it. Um, And we didn't want it to be about that. So the only real option that allowed us full quality control and allowed us to have a decent affordable price for the product because print on demand can be very expensive because you're not printing a volume of books at once. You're printing a book at at a time and and the, the people who press those books, you know, that's an expensive venture for them to do. Um, so we went the ultimately we went with self-publishing, which was me handing the manuscript to James, James formatting the thing into a professional layout that could be printed as a book. It took a lot of time, a lot of proof checking, a lot of reproof checking, a lot of even edits and rewrites after that process started to happen. We wanted this thing to be as perfect as humanly possible. And still, we got a few things wrong, a couple of little typos in there that I'm not so happy about, but hopefully people won't notice them. I um, didn't notice them. <laughs> There are two typos in, in the entire book and they're so embarrassing to me. But anyway, <laughs> so yeah, so then James would have to take his files and find a printing company to actually print a certain volume of books. And then those books would be provided to James in America in his, literally, stores them in his basement. And when people order them, he pack- he packages them up and posts them out. We also sell them through Amazon. So we've sent like a bulk quantity to Amazon and they they sell sell and distribute their copies that they have. And, and yeah, it's a big, long process and I couldn't possibly do it justice by trying to explain it, even though I just did. It's, it's far more complicated and involved and there's far more to it and it's far more ex- expensive than I want to remember. Yeah, it was a very, very nourishing and like rewarding experience as far as like, feeling like an entrepreneur kind of that has put together this like little mini operation that now like runs like clockwork. And it's like, it's, it's a nice little feeling to see like the order come through and there's a certain system in place now that is followed in order to get the book out to people. And then people get the book and they send you their thank you <laughs> and they're all happy about it. And they leave a review, a review on Amazon or whatever. And it's like all, all fun. But, um, but yeah, it is. It is a quite a big process, and yeah, you know. absolutely sounds that way. And I think it's great that you had James there by your side, um, really uh, taking the reins with a lot of that as well. Look, put it this way: if I didn't have James by my side, you wouldn't have a book. So <laughs> that's it. It's quite simple. It wouldn't have happened. It would not have been possible, and I wouldn't have had the resources and the ability to bring it out like like it is. It just wouldn't happen. Damien, what portion of the book would you say fans are most going to be excited about reading and why? I'll probably say the escape chapter and I won't elaborate on it because we've already covered it. Um, The escape chapter will give them a window into the invincible era and that's a really fascinating, fascinating thing to learn about. Um, Just the, the timeline and how things kind of evolved and how things almost didn't happen but, you know, kind of found their way. Um, I think that's that was a really interesting thing for me to learn about, and I think the fans will find it equally as interesting. Yeah, I'd agree. 
It was a great chapter. Yeah, definitely my favourite chapter as well. It's amazing. Do you think you've done the job of the estate here and Sony? Like, shouldn't shouldn't really they be the ones taking on the responsibility of documenting this history as well? Or I would absolutely love to have not had to have done it. And, you know, I'm just a, a guy in Australia. My resources and my, you know level of ability to deliver a quality product is nowhere near that of the estate. Um, they have, you know, an endless amount of funds and resources and people that could have put Escape Origins, which is the book, in the form of a visual documentary. I mean, can you imagine seeing CJ Devilla or Brad Buxer or Michael Prince or Corey Rooney um, sitting in a in the studios in which these magical moments happen and talking at length in detail with having been asked the right questions and being able to uh, elaborate and, and give the full experience of what these eight songs were. I mean, ideally I would have, you know, I'm not doing it to, to get any credit. I don't, like I said, I didn't even want to put my name on the damn book, but so yeah, I would love to have seen, this work presented as a documentary. And I still think that there is, you know, the book existing doesn't, doesn't stop them from doing things like that. Michael's art, the origins of Michael's art and the process that he went through him, Michael Jackson in his life while he was here with us contributing to this stuff. That is what is interesting to me. And I'm sure that is what is interesting or at least what is most interesting to the fans around the world. I personally do not care about hearing from Timberland about how he went about editing what Michael left behind and worked very hard on and completely making it something else. That's not interesting to me. And that is the documentary we got. And the frustrating thing is the attitude. Like these guys are... you know, talking about combining Michael's greatness with their greatness. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be willing to say they brought any greatness to the project. In fact, I think that they censored all of the greatness from the project and replaced it with something that was, you know, possibly entertaining in 2014 and maybe won't be in 2016. And the attitude of these people, the way they talk about, there's a moment in the Escape documentary, the version that we got, not the version that we should have got, but the version that we got where they're listening to the original versions and L.A. Reid plays Timberland, Blue Gangster, and he's like laughing and giggling, saying, oh, well, this original version isn't as bad as the other ones. Like, I mean, that's just so disrespectful for one creative person, Timberland, to be almost talking smack about somebody else's and that somebody else's Michael Jackson and you're supposed to be here honoring the guy and you're talking smack about him. It just didn't sit well with me. I didn't feel good about it. It made me go like, what the fuck? What is the point of this documentary? It's certainly not to talk about Michael Jackson, the creative genius. I mean, there isn't one bit of video footage or um, audio or interview footage or Michael in the studio or anything in that entire documentary. Yeah. That's what I want to see. I want to see, I want to be a fly on the wall for the experience of Michael Jackson. And that's why I tried to write position Escape Origins as a fly on the wall insight to Michael Jackson, the creative genius in the studio working on these things. 
So yeah, again, a long-winded answer to your very simple question. I wouldn't say that I have done the job of the estate because I feel they could do an even better job because their resources are so unlimited and they have the ability to do such a quality project if they really put all of those, all of that money and resource together to, to make something wonderful. They didn't, so I was kind of forced into... I feel like I was forced into making writing the book and I'm not like... Like I was being held hostage, but like it was <laughs> the information was far too important to 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 not do the, the project. Yeah, it had to happen. Someone had to do it, and it just ended up being me. So, with the you mentioned the song Blue Gangster, we did have a question from listener Graham Summers uh, at G Summers nineteen seventy two. He he was just wondering was Blue Gangster originally recorded during Invincible sessions? Yeah, the very very early Invincible sessions. So basically, basically, when Michael finished the history tour at the end of 1997, he took a little break and then started pretty much the Invincible sessions straight away after. Blue Gangster comes from those very early sessions, the 1998 sessions in Los Angeles. Yeah, so is that the full question? There was another yeah, question yeah. I saw on Twitter about the, uh, the version of Blue Gangster that was used on the Escape album. Oh yeah, we we had that one coming up later, but let's go to it now if you'd like. I, mean, yeah. I think it was actually, I think it was uh, Maria. I don't know how. Oh, to say was that his last Maria name. Maria Zudnova from Saint Petersburg in Russia? She emailed yeah. me asking. I suppose you like the song "Blue Gangster." Why? I don't hear the passion in this song. It's the only Michael song I don't like. It's not finished, and I can't imagine the whole song. But I love your story about this song in Escape Origins. And are there any Michael songs old or new that you don't like? Okay, that's not the question I was thinking of, but I will, oh, <laughs> I will okay. answer it. Uh, <laughs> Maria, absolutely lovely person. Um, I met Maria in, uh, in Los Angeles in June 2014. She is absolutely beautiful. And hi, Maria. I would agree with her, I don't, it's not that I, I don't know, I feel like bad about criticizing anything Michael did, like, it's like, it's like they're like babies or something, and I'm just like, trying to say I don't like that baby, but I like this baby, <laughs> you know, um, Blue, if I have to put, a, make a list of my songs from favorite to least favorite, Blue Gangster would be at the way down the bottom, uh, it's, it's not one that I really like at all, um, in comparison with Michael's other work. So I agree with her on that front, but I don't. I'm not so sure that I agree that it doesn't sound finished. The version that, that was released. Well, the version that was released on the Escape album is not the most recent version that Michael worked on. There are a bunch of missing elements, changes that were made to the song by Michael under his strict instructions, as far as additional percussion that was added and certain sounds that were traded out and replaced by other sounds, and so I. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to judge the version on the Escape album as harshly as some people may because it isn't. It isn't the most up-to-date version that Michael worked on. He perfected it more and worked on it and sonically changed it. Yeah, we found a question uh, which you've just touched on. So it was sent in from Sonrissa Marie on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, she wants to know why the updated version of Blue Gangster wasn't included on Escape. It's an interesting... It's an interesting question. Obviously, there is no definitive answer. I can only theorize or speculate as to why the finished version of Blue Gangster 
wasn't included. And mind you, uh, there were newer versions of most of the songs from that album uh, that were included on the album that weren't included. Um, and especially uh, the versions that were included weren't mixed properly. Like, for example, Corey Rooney wasn't contacted to do a proper mix of She Was Loving Me. It was just like, just the, like I think the way he explained it to me. And I'm not a studio person, so please forgive me if I'm talking, you know, using incorrect terms here. But from memory, when I spoke to him last, he said that it just sounds like they've taken a two-track and just flattened it. Left and right channels just merged into one and just, yeah, just, just made a very flat kind of combination of the two things. And it just sounds flat. When I was with Corey in Los Angeles in his studio, he showed me, he brought the multi-track of She Was Loving Me up on his studio system and played me the version the way that I wish the world could have heard it. And like the tranquility and the lushness and the richness of the sounds and the layers and the panning and sounds coming at you from all different angles. And you know, that was like the way Michael did all of his music. You know, for example, can explain it to the listeners as, you know, you're sitting in the car listening to a Michael Jackson song and you feels like there's a sound coming out of that speaker and then there's a sound coming out of that one. Now there's one coming from the back and there's, you know, there's a voice coming from over here, but wow, that, that background vocal comes from down there. And like, it sounds like there's things happening all around you. And that was, that was exactly the kind of thing that Corey had created with his version of she was loving me. But the version that we get on the escape album is just like flat. I don't know how else to explain it. I'm not a studio person. It just sounds flat. No, that's, that's, I think that's a good way to describe it. I feel that way. And the biggest, I feel one of the biggest injustices here is that those songs, the original versions did come out, you know, as a part of escape, but it was like the biggest tease you can imagine. Cause it's like, Oh, here's the original versions, but we're not going to give you the latest and fullest versions. We're not going to give you the, properly mixed down version of She Was Loving Me by Corey Rooney. We're not going to give you the amazing Blue Gangster latest version with the percussive elements that Brad Bucks have put on there. There's just so, it's just, I just, I can't describe how frustrated I feel by that. I don't want remixes. I don't want Timberland versions of the songs. As a fan, I, as a, you know, an appreciator of Michael's historical legacy and art, I want to hear the latest versions of the stuff he put out. Well, his philosophy, and, and this is a big thing for me as far as, you know, being charged with running Michael's empire, running his estate, essentially taking over, I guess, the role of being his spokesperson in his death and being the co-executives of his estate. I feel that everything should be governed and run based upon his philosophy. And his philosophy was very, very clear. He made no bones about repeatedly talking about perfectionism and, you know, not wanting something to go out until you had, you really made sure that you'd done everything within your power to make it as good as it could be. And he did that with these pieces and we aren't getting the versions that have every inch of Michael Jackson's effort in them it's it's a little bit frustrating and somebody else there was another question i know this isn't part of your list of questions but i i did um, mention that i would i would address it someone asked like why what what do you think the reason for that is is it incompetence is it is it a um 
like a, a purposeful strategy? Is there some kind of reason? Are they sabotaging? And I don't think it was incompetence, and I don't think it was necessarily sabotage either. If I had to theorize why we got those versions, I think it's just so that it sounds like they needed to be updated because they're not mixed properly. Say, for example, uh, what's a good example I can give? Well, She Was Loving Me. I'll just use that example again since we've been talking about it. That was recorded during the Invincible sessions. Now, you put the Invincible album on, and it's you know it's mixed by Bruce Swedean. Um, Stuart Brawley did a lot of the mixing, and it's very multi-layered and very kind of um, professional. So it's a Michael Jackson album. I think there are Michael Jackson albums that are mixed a little bit better than Invincible, but it's still very good quality sound. Maybe too loud, or maybe you know whatever. But it's very very high quality sound. If She Was Loving Me was included on the Invincible album 14 years ago it would have been mixed to that same level of quality. And we, it would have been a very, you know, lush sounding song, the way that it was written. So I, 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 I just kind of don't understand why those versions, the way they would have been released if they had been included on studio albums, why can't like, they can't be mixed to that standard? I mean, it's Michael's legacy we're talking about here. Shouldn't, shouldn't everything be as good as it can be? Definitely agree. And just uh, while we're on the note of uh, She Was Loving Me, I, I think what we might do now is just play a, a little song for our listeners as well. Some of you may not have heard it, but it's actually a version of, of She Was Loving Me that, um, and some of you actually um, might know the song of Chicago <laughs> as it was named on the Escape record, but uh, originally it was titled uh, She Was Loving Me. And, and to me, that's what the song will always be called. But there was a version of it uh, mixed and, and put together collaboratively by Corey Rooney, uh, the original writer and producer of the song, and then also Michael Jackson's nephew, Tarrell Jackson. And it's a bit of a different take on the song, uh, and, and I believe one or both of them have come out and publicly said that this is possibly the direction of uh, where the song might have went had Michael continued to work on it as well. Uh, so let's have a listen to Corey Rooney and Tarrell Jackson's co-produced version of She Was Loving Me. Where she was all alone So was 
Great song, love it. Definitely uh, one of my most listened to Michael Jackson tracks. Absolutely incredible. I love the rock feel to it. I'm not sure if that's the direction Michael would eventually have gone in. Uh, I'm not really certain, but uh, I think they did a great job putting it together. Wouldn't you agree, Damien? Yeah, I, I really do enjoy that version of the of the song. Uh, Tarrell's incredibly talented. Um, some of the work that he's done, obviously, um, his own solo work is incredible, but um, Speaking to Corey, he did mention that that was he'd had conversations with Michael about the song after they did the original version. As I've written in the book, he kind of Michael would always kind of just bring the song up and say, you know, we've still got the song, we've still got to do something with the song, and yeah, that's that's kind of the direction that Michael had indicated maybe that it would go in. And I, I feel that it allows Michael's powerful vocal to really soar a little bit. He's like roaring like a lion. Like that's the kind of analogy that I give with the vocal that he's doing on the chorus of that song. And I feel like having that strong drum sequencing and um, and guitar under the vocal kind of allows it to lift it up and and be you know realize its full potential a little bit. However, I, I just absolutely love the production on the original version that mm. Corey did. It reminds me a little bit of Liberian Girl, and I think that's a kind of cool sound as well. So I don't know. Music is music, art is art. Things can sound wonderful in many different forms, but um, who knows what it would have been had Michael actually decided to release it at some stage. It could have been completely reimagined for all we know, so who knows. So this week you put a blog post up, Damien, about a, a year since Escape was released. How, and you touched on this in that blog, but for the listeners like that might not have read it yet, how successful do you think the Escape Era was for Sony and for the estate? It's a, it's an interesting question. 
it depends how you're judging success. Like what certain like criteria are you looking for to determine success? Are you just looking at, you know, you got a hit single out of it, you sold 1.5 million albums and, you know, fans around the world went to the store, handed over their cash. Yeah, well, it was successful. Of course it was. I think it could have been more successful. I don't think it needed to necessarily come to a screaming halt when the A Place With No Name single kind of flopped for no better word. Um, I'll give you a, the reason I think for that is because they put the mix out. If they put the uh, the other demo version of it out, I think it would have been an amazing success. And then they well, followed put, it up with a really shitty video and it was horrendous. Well, put it this way. There are a number of key reasons. Statistically, and I'm speaking purely from statistics and you know, trying to keep my own personal opinion out of it, although no promises. That's okay. Um, That's what we're here for. We're here for the personal opinion. <laughs> All right. Well, here you go. The, the, the reason that the escape, uh, the A Place With No Name single flopped was, okay, they've got – it's supposed to be a single, right? They've put a video out, but it was never released as a single on iTunes. There was never a, a single individual track that was, you know, marketed and given an ad – on the iTunes homepage that says new Michael Jackson single, buy it now here for $1.99 or whatever. They never did that. So, okay. It's not essentially available to be bought as a single unless someone searches the escape album and goes in and, and buys track number four or track number 11 or whatever it was. The second reason is they have the video. There's two components to judge on the video. Do you actually like the video? Is it a good video? And then the method in which the video was released. Now, they went with this big hoo-ha about the world's first Twitter video, right? It's going to be this big world premiere Twitter video. And it was to be debuted there exclusively before it was uploaded to the Michael Jackson Vivo channel. The problem was that when they aired that video on the Twitter video feature, which I've never really seen used since in any significant way. The video was like stalling and not playing. And I saw fans all around the world tweeting, I can't watch it. Or if I can watch it, it plays for like three seconds and then stops. And then it plays for another three seconds and then stops again. Uh, It was a disaster. Um, I don't understand why they were experimenting in a big music video launch for what was supposed to be a single which was never then released on iTunes and never serviced to radio either. Um, it just it was it was an all-round disaster. It was doomed for the beginning, and the fact that music industry people were behind it was even more baffling to me. I, I have no explanation how they could have possibly thought any of these decisions were good, um, and how any of them would possibly have resulted in a successful single. As far as success, if we're going to deem it, as far as single sales and radio play and YouTube views and chart position because charts now are even impacted by the number of streams that a song has. So um, like the Love Never Felt So Good music video has been viewed more than 100 million times and a lot of those views were in the first few months and they impacted heavily on the chart position of that song. Um, And that was Michael Jackson's most successful single, if you can call it a Michael Jackson single, since Rock My World. Um, possibly, I haven't actually analyzed the stats, but there's a slight possibility that it was more successful than Rock My World. 
which would mean it was the most successful Michael Jackson single since uh, Blood on the Dance Floor in 1997, which is incredible to think about. Um, but they didn't. It just seemed like they didn't make any moves to make it successful. Like they had options, they had the ability to do it, but they didn't do it. And then afterwards, it was just like, well, okay, we've hit our first road bump in this escape campaign. Abandon. It's like they hit the the eject button and just shot themselves out and let the jet crash and everything blew up in smoke and 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 they never mentioned it again. They never mentioned like the it was almost like the escape album didn't exist after the end of August two thousand and fourteen, which was bizarre because up until that moment they were planning on re-releasing the album in the fourth quarter just before Christmas with a few new songs and a new single and. You know, it was going to be like Escape Reloaded or Escape 2.0 or whatever the hell they were going to call it. And it, you know, would have probably injected, a, you know, another million sales into the album. And then you can really start saying, yeah, that was a really successful campaign. I don't know. It was, it was abandoned when I figured, I guess, they'd maybe made enough money and didn't couldn't be bothered to do anything else with it. I don't know. I can only speculate as to their mindset because I'm not in their mind. But it, none of it really makes any actual sense to me it's very it's very baffling to me so yeah i agree so what do you think about the michael jackson estate in general dun 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 um well because obviously they they had a big part to play in the escape project and the the release of the album and the promotion of it and everything along with sony music and like i feel like they have a lot of responsibility in terms of whether things are successes or not or whether things should come out or not or you know all of that kind of thing so in terms of the estate and what they're doing well they are the gate holders they are the gatekeepers to michael's empire they get final yes or no on everything all right so let me let me actually try and answer the question what do i think of michael's estate what do i think maybe i'll answer it in a, in a, in a different way maybe if i was running the estate how i would do it because I don't want to judge them on a personal level or as people, individuals. Um, Michael is dead. He's going to have an estate. Somebody is going to be running his estate. Somebody or some people, some group of people are going to be running his estate. Saying that, you know, Michael having an estate is a bad thing is silly because regardless of who's in charge, he's going to have one. Uh, and there are going to be co-executives or executors of the estate. If it was up to me, I would just simply say I would be governed by... Michael's philosophy first. Yes, it is the job of the estate to make money for the beneficiaries of that estate, which is Michael's mother and his three children. But I would I would make sure that every move follow Michael's blueprint essentially. He did things a certain way. He had certain kind of guidelines that he followed, certain quality control that he held himself to, certain philosophies philosophies on the reasons behind things and, you know, I just think that if I was running the estate, that that would be my driving force. And I, I don't see how you couldn't make as much, just as much money by following Michael Jackson's philosophy. Because remember, he was the, you know, the biggest earning music superstar in the history of existence. So he was obviously doing something right in order to make money when he was alive. So if you just continue that blueprint in death, surely the money will continue to flow. If that's all you care about, you're going to get your money. But just do it with respect because anything with Michael's name on it is going to sell. And for that simple fact alone, I think that 
just knowing, knowing that it's going to sell because it's got his name attached to it allows you the freedom to go into complete quality overkill and make everything incredible and everything amazing because you know when you put it out, people are going to love it. And if it's good work, if it's good, timeless work, it will continue to sell forever. Whereas some of these remix things and blah, blah, they'll be like, you know, hot today and cold tomorrow. And if you if you look at the interviews that Michael did, sorry, if you look at the interviews that people who worked with Michael did towards the end of his career, people were starting to say, Neo was starting to say, you know, we're not here to make, to follow trends. We're here to dial it back to what people loved about Michael in the first place was pure authentic music. Will I am saying it's not about crazy beats that are going to be here today and gone tomorrow, but about melodies that'll last a lifetime. And I think if we just follow the philosophy of the music, follow the philosophy of the business, follow the philosophy of the perfection of the, you know, and, and of course of the charity as well, like donating money to charity, let's not go there, but you know, Michael always had his finger in some kind of charitable organization trying to, donate here or help this thing or this single's coming out but it's going to benefit that or things like that so i mean follow the philosophies and i don't think you can go wrong um the estate has gone wrong a number of times significantly big big crucial bad mistakes big like unthinkable mistakes that you could make whether they're mistakes or you know purposefully done you know let's not go there either but if that, if that answers the question, then hopefully it does. If it doesn't, then I don't think I can answer it. But I, I would run the estate based on Michael's philosophies. Yeah. And I'm sorry again. I keep saying sorry. I'm sorry for saying sorry so much. <laughs> but I can't really answer these questions with, with like a quick little answer. It's no, really no. Difficult to we do really, so. the whole idea is to get your extended thoughts out. I really want, to, I, I want our listeners to understand how much you think about these concepts. They're not just things that... You know, you didn't just wake up one morning and write about Escape Origins, the the songs on the album. That's a, a product of deep thought that occurs in your life every day. I mean, we speak on the phone nearly every day, if not every day, about if these things. If not twice a day. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this, you know, these things are always running through our minds, you know, like, um, and, and I think just getting that your extended thoughts out recorded for people to hear is, is a really important thing. So, Yeah, just follow the... Follow Michael's blueprint. I mean, half the blueprint he left in handwritten notes and audio messages. Like, follow it. Very simple. We've got a uh, a question here. We've got. Well, we might move into the section now. Of the interview where we're getting some some questions in from um, different fans around the world that have uh, posted on Facebook and Twitter and different things to ask you and emailed in. And the first one we've got is uh, a question from Tom Rugitman who has sent a question in on Facebook and he asked... I'm going to have a stab at it. Is it Tom Rautemann? Uh, possibly. I don't... I mean, I'm probably way off the mark with Rugitimin, but <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Uh, so Tom, Tom's asking which songs, if any, would Damien like to be released that haven't been so far? None. Zero. None. And, and the ones that have been released that weren't released in Michael's lifetime, I would also have, you know, personally preferred, not that it's my place to say. Personally, my own personal opinion that I've formed over the years, uh, which, you know, has definitely changed over the years, by the way. I've, you know, in the years gone by, I was probably 
chomping at the bit for unreleased Michael Jackson material um, just as much as any fan. Um, when we waited for that, for the Michael album to come out, it was probably the most exciting period of my entire life, just like knowing that there was going to be some unreleased Michael Jackson stuff that I'd never heard before for selfish reasons, purely selfish, because I personally wanted to hear it, me. I'm going to sit in my bloody bedroom with my headphones on and jam to new Michael Jackson music. The most exciting period ever, um, only to be hugely let down by a massive shitstorm that happened, but let's not go there. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, at this point in my life and having spoken to the people that Michael worked with to the extent that I have and, I don't know, getting older and just kind of settling on a few different philosophical um, kind of things and uh, I just... Uh, you know, it's a bit of a party pooper answer to say don't release anything that he didn't release, but at least not in the foreseeable future. Mm. Maybe, you know, 15 years down the track and, you know, you want to bring out, you know, the, the Michael Jackson, the incomplete sessions, you know, the, yeah. the demos, you know, an anthology of demo songs that Michael had like half completed or quarter completed or, you know, even just instrumentals that he had kind of guided to production but never laid a vocal on maybe but like but right now for me what has to, what what I what I feel is important is the stuff that he released in his lifetime but if, give you an example I'm currently teaching this 8-year-old kid to dance like Michael Jackson he's just a huge fan he went to a tribute concert here in Australia by a Michael Jackson tribute artist called Kenny Wiz and after the show him and his parents were kind of like like in the lobby area where, you know, Kenny and the crew comes out and, you know, says, you know, thank the audience and sign stuff and take photos and the promotional people are there answering, answering questions. And this little kid, he was seven at the time, seven-year-old kid has the presence of mind to say, will Kenny Wiz be performing in Australia forever? And the promoters say, no, no, after these few performances in Australia, he's going back to America and he won't be back for a few years. This little seven-year-old kid goes, well, who will keep Michael's music alive? And then the um, promotional people kind of had no real answer for him and his parents were kind of like, whoa. And then his the kid was like, well, if Kenny's not going to stay here and keep Michael's music alive by doing his shows, I want to do it. So then we've got a little seven-year-old kid who feels the weight of Michael Jackson's artistic legacy is on his shoulders because, well, if Kenny Wiz isn't going to do his concert and share Billie Jean and Beat It and Thriller and, and all of these songs with the public, then who, who the hell is going to do it? This is a seven-year-old kid who formed this opinion. And this is a seven-year-old kid who I'm getting to know, teaching him to dance. He owns the Escape album and he you know knows all of the songs on the album. But when you ask him what his favorite Michael Jackson song is, Smooth Criminal. Hmm. What's your second favorite Michael Jackson song? Beat It. What's your third favorite Michael Jackson song? Billie Jean. What's your fourth favorite Michael Jackson song? They Don't Care About Us. What's your fit? It, you go through the list, and you're not going to get an Escape song in the list, even though he's got the album, even though he knows all the songs. Yeah. This kid is drawn to the magic of what Michael Jackson himself knew was magic. He And he shared that stuff with the world. And for me, Michael's legacy and the things that are released and kind of given a platform by the estate who are in the position of power and Sony Music and the Epic Records who are in that position of power to really show the world who 
and what Michael Jackson was and what he was about. I, I don't understand how we how the first thing you do is reintroduce the world to those songs and albums and performances that Michael himself allowed the world to have. Now you look at the products that have been released since Michael's death and you've got the, you've got obviously got, this is it, which is a work in progress that Michael never got to finish. And you can argue for or against whether it's a good idea. No comment. Um, I mean, I can't say that I didn't enjoy it when I saw it in the cinemas. I did. I absolutely loved it. I saw it 11 times in the cinemas, 10 or 11 times. You've got Michael album, which is songs that Michael never released. Um, you've got escape album, which is songs that Michael never released. You've got bad 25, which is giving a platform to the bad album. But then there is a whole collection of songs that Michael never released on the, the thing. And you can argue for or against whether it's good or bad that we've got them. But I don't understand why, if you're going to make these deals with, like the estate have made a 10-project, seven-year deal with Sony that's just basically going to flood the market with Michael Jackson stuff. If you're going to flood the market with Michael Jackson stuff, flood the market with Michael Jackson stuff that Michael Jackson wanted the public to have, wanted the market to have. You know? I don't see any better proof than the seven-year-old kid who has the Escape album, who went to the Kenny Wiz concert, who is completely obsessed and in love with everything that Michael did from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s and has absolutely no interest in these new products. This is an this is an completely uncorrupted kid who is just drawn to quality stuff because that's what kids are drawn to. They're drawn to the, the good quality stuff. That's why kids love the melodies of children's cartoons and, you know, the wiggles and all these little things that, you know, they're not by any means deep and meaningful, but the, the, the melodies of these things are so powerful and strong enough that children just obsess over them. And the same thing applies to the, to, to the music that MJ releases as an adult. So, I mean, I've, you know, blabbering on. No, no, absolutely. I couldn't. I, couldn't just, I just can't. Yeah, to answer Tom's question, I just, I just don't see the need. At this point, this early point, he's only been gone for not even what six years. We don't need to be to just be completely raiding his vault, scraping the barrel. And I know I've been given criticism for that term, but all it means is choosing the things that were at the bottom of his list, not the things that were at the top of his list, to give platforms to. Absolutely. So, Damien, we had an email in from listener Jay, and uh, Jay asked, Hi, are you planning on doing a book, a piece on less-known MJ songs, like Money or Someone Put Your Hand Out or This Time Around, Superfly Sister, etc.? These are great pieces of music that basically only fans or music critics know. Casual listeners don't have a clue. Even fans more or less know the story behind these songs, but there's so much more to know. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Jay. Um, currently not on my radar to do any project of that nature. Uh, I think it would be a big task, especially if the songs that you're suggesting to be written about are you know, unrelated to each other. Uh, it's, it's difficult to track down you know, such a different wide variety of people who might have contributed to the original versions of those uh, songs. Check Joe Vogel's book out, Man in the Music, and check... Chris Cadman's book, uh, The Maestro. 
there is plenty of info on those songs in those books. Uh, they, they're covered fairly well. But, yeah, I mean, there's always room for more. There's always room for more information. And I, I would be the first person to want to read about them. Um, but I, I don't think that I'm going to be the person writing about them. So um, I've just got too many things on my plate at the moment and uh, too many other projects in the works. And I just don't think that I could f- squeeze that project in. But it, it is a good idea. And I definitely think that those songs that have slipped under the radar uh, a little bit as far as being given their critical acclaim should be written about. I think all of Michael's art should be written about at some stage. Just we need to band together and find the people who have the resources to to do it to to make it all happen eventually so that when people look back, Michael can be studied completely. I don't want there to be any areas missing or overlooked from Michael's career because it's just so, so, so fascinating and in-depth. Yeah, absolutely. Jay, uh, Jay Hoffman from Cardiff in the UK has um, contacted us and is asking, why wasn't Escape the lead single? Uh, Michael loved this track, so Rodney Jerkins said, and didn't Rodney Jerkins say that he had footage of Michael in the studio, perfect for a short film? Well, I can't answer why it wasn't released as a single. Um, I have no idea. I wasn't in the room when the record executives were deciding what the singles were going to be, but... um, yeah, a few of the radio personalities who did the um, one of those very first listening sessions uh, when the album was doing like playback sessions in New York at Top of the Rock and they did one in London as well. Escape was listed as one of the ones that the radio personalities felt had potential airplay potential, radio friendly. So, I mean, it could have been a single. Um, ultimately, it just wasn't. Um, no explanation. But yeah, Michael apparently did love it, if you believe what Rodney Jerkins said, which I do. And um, I spoke to Fred Jerkins about it as well. And he said that when it leaked, it was you know very disappointing for everybody as music people that, you know, the song wasn't able to be what it could have been, you know, with a proper video and a proper release and a proper platform and the final like mastering of the, of the, the audio and everything. But Fred also says, in the same token, you have to look at these people before they started working with Michael. They were fans. They were Michael Jackson fans. So they also had to allow themselves to take a step back and look at it from a fan perspective and understand that the song had leaked. You know, Perhaps the chance to put it out as a single was now out the window um, at the time in 2002. But fans around the world were loving it and it was getting rave reviews and they had to just look at it and go, well, isn't that wonderful? The fans are loving this song. So they tried to take the positive out of it not being released at the time. And I think we've had it for so long. I don't know if it would work as a single, but I don't know. It's a good song. I think um, they could have done like a long form or even in Michael's time, I think the song would have lent itself very cool to a long form animated video. Yeah. Like anime, like Daft Punk did an animated film and I, like that kind of thing. I think that would have really suited the track. Yeah, totally. I've, whenever I've heard the song, I've always had in my mind a visual of like an, like a Japanese anime style short film yes. of like, I don't know, Michael, an anime version escaping from a prison on a motorbike. And like, I just, I don't know, it could be, could have been cool. There's so many possibilities that the estate. Wearing a rabbit's head. <laughs> Yeah, throwback. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it. Just goes to show how many possibilities the estate have with, um, you know, ways to promote using audio visual that aren't necessarily 
you know, footage isn't necessarily footage of Michael. Look, they definitely need to take a look at what they're doing with the videos because they're, they're not working. I don't think no, they've done, they haven't, they haven't done a single rubbish. video that I find to be anywhere near Michael Jackson's standards. Michael Jackson revolutionized and basically put his name, his stamp on short films as being, he's the guy, like he's the measuring stick. He's the best at it that there ever was. There'll never be anybody as good at music videos as Michael Jackson. And again, follow the philosophy, follow the level of quality, the standards that Michael set and try and come close. You're never going to match it, but if you aim at trying to do what he did, at least you might come, come, you know, close maybe. And if you do fall short, then it's going to still be a decent attempt, but it just, it just doesn't seem there's any, any imagination or creativity being thrown in these things. It seems like they're going for cheap, affordable versions of videos, just very, very basic, plain, literal interpretations of them. And I don't know, Hollywood tonight, try to completely rewrite the story to make it look like a success. <laughs> and this was actually a very deep, dark, dark story of Michael Jackson being the voice for the voiceless that completely got flipped on its head and became a, happy dancing flash mob of people in Hollywood. Like, give me a break. But anyway, next question. <laughs> uh, so real quick, uh, I think you might have already answered this, but Marnie Carlson, what, who, very quick, who was your favourite person to interview? Yeah, definitely CJ Villa. Awesome. Had, and had the passion. It was just the passion. It was literally like, it was like a motivational speaker or something. And he was just, he just press play and he's just going. He just on and on and on. Interviewed him for two hours straight, and he just couldn't stop talking. I only had to stop the interview because I had to go somewhere. But he, he could have probably gone on for another two hours. He was just amazing. We had uh, one of our favorite listeners, Ashley Beers at MJ underscore fans underscore unite. Ashley, uh, I love you, Ashley. Yes, we love Ashley. What was your favorite experience you had while writing and researching Escape Origins? Definitely the moments in the studio with the guys that I interviewed who allowed me into their environments. Some of the things that I saw and heard were just mind-blowing. Some of the stories that I didn't include in the book that weren't really relevant to the songs or the, you know, the origins of or the eras or periods in which these songs come from, but just like tales and anecdotes and things. It was just, just unbelievable. And so I just think, yeah, being in – like you can interview someone over the phone from Australia – um, but when you've actually jumped on a plane and flown to Los Angeles and you're in the middle, like in the heart of where all these things happen, you're driving down the same road that Michael drove down to go to the same studio that Michael went to, to sit there and talk to the same person that Michael worked with for this moment. It's just like, you kind of have to pinch yourself and go, wow, this is pretty unbelievable. And I'm pretty lucky. So just those, those intimate in-person moments with people revealing and showing me things that, you know, the world had never heard or learned before was just really, really fascinating. Another question here from June Astford, AKA at J A S T F O R D on Twitter says that she'd like to hear about collaborations with Barry Gibb and will I am from you, Damien. Okay. Um, I actually think I answered uh, June on Twitter. I think he did. The what? I'll just I'll just answer the question the exact same way that I answered her on Twitter, um, because those collaborations aren't really relevant to anything. I'm, I try not to talk when things aren't relevant. When things don't need to be, you know, un, untold stories don't need to be told. I don't 
I try to steer away from them. Um, mm. Barry Gibbs' moments with Michael were very private to Barry Gibbs, and I, I think that you know he may share those stories at some stage. Um, that would be wonderful to hear them from him. You definitely don't need to hear them from me. Well, there's still a chance to hear them from him. The stuff with Will I Am, well, another project on the horizon, which may provide a much more relevant platform to talk a little bit about that stuff, but still there isn't all that much to talk about with Will I Am's stuff. It was a very sporadic working relationship. It wasn't like the days in the 80s where Michael would sit in the studio with John Barnes and Matt Forger and and all of these engineers and producers and just churn out 60 demos and record them. It was it was a completely different scenario with Michael in the final years and Will I Am was you know, someone that Michael was trialing a relationship with, but yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily think that there is a reason. And I hate to be, you know, a party pooper and, and not answer the question, but I don't really feel that there is anything I can, anything valuable I can bring to the table at this, at this moment. Anyway, I I don't know if, um, just, uh, speaking to June, I don't know if, if, uh, she's, actually read it but there's a great article out there called redemption songs that came out after michael passed away which kind of attempted to chronicle his recording efforts with different producers just prior to his death and there is quite a lot of information in that article about his um his work with will i am so i might put that one in the show notes just in case june can learn any information about will i am from that article it's a fantastic article. Whoever wrote that needs to be given some credit. So put yeah. that in the yeah, put then first put the author of that in the show notes because they did a fantastic job. Right in a moment when it could have been just so easy for them to talk about something controversial, they wrote something very interesting about Michael's work. So yeah, put that in there. That's awesome. Love that article. Absolutely will. I believe that it um I think it was written by a guy called Keith Keith Murphy. I think, and mm-hmm. I'm just trying to remember what publication it might have been Vibe, but uh, I'll definitely put that up in the show notes. Vibe do so much good stuff for Michael. Such a good resource. Absolutely. Our last question today for our Escape Origin special is just all about uh, where you're going to go from here. We want to know what the next step is for Damien Shields in terms of your work putting out Michael Jackson-related material. Well, it's not obviously no secret that um, for the last almost, I guess, four and a half years. I've been um, really trying to dig to the roots of the uh, the controversy controversy that exploded when the Michael album was released in 2010. Certain songs on the album provided by James Port and Eddie Cassio definitely created an explosion of, of displeasure among the Michael Jackson fans and the family and certain producers that worked with Michael. And there was a, a big, big uproar about that whole project. None of that has been resolved. Uh, so I've been working for the last four and a half years on trying to dig to the bottom of it and get in a position where I feel I can um, publish, you know, a, a full kind of overview of what happened, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. I'm working on it. I haven't stopped working on it. I've been working on it for all that time. Uh, it, it's just, it's a really difficult thing to say when it's going to be out because it's not going to be out until I feel that it's, um, you know, worthy. And right now I still want to can continue perfecting it and working on it and researching it a little bit more. But at some point I will have to abandon it and release it. There's a, there's a great saying that I was, someone shared with me recently and it's that art is never complete, only abandoned. You could always do one more brush stroke on a painting. You can always make one more little fine tuning on a song. 
you know, you can always make one, you know, little edit as far as the way you write something in a book. But eventually, at some point, you have to go, okay, I'm abandoning this and I'm going to release it. So I'm not at the point with the, um, the research into the Michael album uh, where, I, where I can abandon it yet. Um, but hopefully, I'm aiming to do it maybe towards the end of next year. Um, but, I mean, you'll really have to stay tuned. And it's not me trying to create an excitement or a following. Stay tuned, you know, watch this space. But I just haven't got an answer. I just couldn't really tell you when. But, uh, but that is what is next. So so exciting. Can't wait for you to do that. We know how hard you've been working on that project. It's a, a mystery that needs to be solved. And we can't wait to see what comes out of um, the A Truth Untold project. Yeah, I think as well as, as well as talking about the controversy, there'll also be, and that's what a lot of fans are asking often, there will be a lot of stuff about the legitimate, authentic work that Michael was doing in those final years. And also about the origins of the, the seven authentic songs on the, the Michael album. I don't feel there is any better way to exemplify the fact that the origins of a song can be traced and that the, the stories can be told and the people who worked on them are more than happy to talk about it than by doing exactly that with the songs. So, um, you know, in a similar formula to the way that the Escape Origins book was presented with the origins of those songs, uh, I'll try and do something similar uh, with obviously with all the other information and the other aspects and the other elements and the, you know, the build-up and the, the deception and the cover-up and the whole thing and a plethora of new information that the public has never heard to bring to the table. Uh, yeah, it'll be a just a big combined collaborative kind of effort and it's not just me working on it as well. I've got a lot of people um, working on it. You know, obviously James works on that thing with me and we've got a few fans like Dan and Ashley who submitted a question. She's worked on that project with me and a bunch of people. So it's a big team effort. Absolutely. Well, we might wrap the show here. Uh, I think it's been a great opportunity for us all to talk together about Escape Origins. Uh, Damien, would you like to tell listeners where to go to grab a copy of Escape Origins? Oh, how shameless is this? If you want to get a copy of Escape Origins, there are a couple of platforms you can you can buy. There's physical copies available on our website, escapeorigins.com. Go straight there and you can order it directly from us. We're currently offering... a crazy special it, the book is only 10.95 on escapeorigins.com it's the lowest price it's ever been it's literally we're selling it at a loss it's like we're trying to give it away we want people to have this information the info about the songs and the the origins of the of the work that michael did during his life you can also buy a copy on amazon and then digital ebook copies are available on kindle ibooks and google play as well we also have coming very soon we have a Russian translation of the book and a Spanish translation of the book. Those will be released in the digital ebook forms. I'm sorry, I can't give an exact release date. I'm not sure exactly when they're coming out, but they are coming. They've already been uh, written. They're just kind of being formatted and uh, submitted for publication at the moment. So keep your eyes peeled if you're uh, one of the Russian-speaking fans or Spanish-speaking fans because... Uh, the people who have translated them for us have worked extremely hard and they've done a very, very good job. So we can't wait to share those as well. That's huge news. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, that, that, might be a... ex- that might be an exclusive. I don't know uh, if that's really announced before today. But yeah, <laughs> anyway, if that, if that is an exclusive, then there you go. Yeah, Russian, that's pretty cool. Russian and Spanish. Very cool. That's going to make a lot of people very happy 
Um, so we're actually recording this on the 16th of May, 2015. So do you know how long that sale will last? Well, it's the week, so this week is the, like we addressed earlier, the one year anniversary of the Escape album, kind of just in honour and celebration of, of the public having access to these songs. We've decided to put it on special. Who knows? I don't know how long the sale will last. It could. All right, but just go to escapeorigins.com to see the current price. It may not be on sale forever, like the, the current sale price that Damien mentioned. So go directly to escapeorigins.com to get your physical copy, and that's where you will see the best price of the day for the book. Yeah. Um, and it is a beautiful physical book. Like if you do like your little Michael Library, it fits in there perfectly. You're up next to some big names in my library, Damien, so well done. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on the show. It's been an awesome special. I think a lot of people are going to be very happy learning more about the book. I think um, a lot of people are going to be asleep by the end of it because I talked for so freaking long. The joy of podcasting is they can pause it and <laughs> rewind it. And, and you know what? Not... My what? favourite MJ casts are the short ones. And here I am giving you a two-hour plus... <laughs> Blah blah blah, blah 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 MJ cast. So yeah, well, maybe I'm just going against you everything to I believe back, in. Maybe when you listen to it back, you can just stop it halfway and pretend it was a short episode, and then there's a part two for you. Go! I, I hate my <laughs> voice so much. You're going to be pushed to get me to listen to five minutes of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you wouldn't give an answer shorter than five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. No, it's going to be a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a great book. You should be very proud. I'm very proud of you for putting it together and we look forward to what else is to come. So, uh, of course, for our listeners, we are The MJ Cast. Our website is at www.themjcast.com. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash themjcast. We are on Twitter at twitter.com slash the MJ cast and our username is at the MJ cast. This show will also be uh, going onto YouTube and email us at the MJ cast at iCloud.com. Uh, Damien, thank you again. Thanks mate. No worries at all. And if any of the fans want to interact with me personally as well, you can reach me on uh, my Twitter, which is just forward slash Damien Shields. You can get me on Facebook, which is forward slash Damien Shields page. And obviously check my, my website blog, which is damienchills.com. Sounds great. Look, I think it's time we wrap the show up. Thank you so much, Damien, uh, for coming on to uh, our Escape Origin special. It's uh, deeply appreciated by both Q and I. Good luck with all of your future writing, and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Uh, to all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in to another podcast episode of the MJ Cast. Keep Michaeling.